Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. So, welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart, and I'm a bit worried, Alistair, because you've been talking about how you want the first question, which is usually a bad sign. <laughs> well, I always, unlike you, Rory, I sit and go through all of them, even when they're in the thousands, because I think it's an important thing to do. But you've got a proper job now, so I accept you've got, you've got all that to get on with. But this is my question of the week. It's from Andrew McEwen. Uh-huh. Apropos, apropos of nothing, he says, <laughs> what is worse, an intelligent person pretending to be dim or a dim person pretending to be intelligent. And if we don't get the point, hashtag Bojo Truss. That's good. It's good, yeah. I actually think it's quite an interesting question anyway, though. I'd, I'd like to think about that a bit. I'm not sure I've got a really good answer. I think, I think different forms of authenticity are irritating in quite different ways, but probably a stupid person pretending to be clever is more annoying than a clever person pretending to be stupid. Okay. Okay. And do do you do you think that sometimes Boris Johnson has pretended to be a bit of an oaf or do you think he is a bit of an oaf? No, I think he's actually rotted his brain. I think he stopped thinking when he was about 15 mm. and has been coasting ever since. And I think the truth is that if you read his books and stuff, they're just he can't string a proper sentence together even when he's trying now. He he, he did one last clever thing. He did a a lecture on the Latin poet Horace about I suppose, 12 years ago now, which was the last sign that there was something going on between the ears. But- <laughs> and, and what about Liz Truss? We do, I, I think that Andrew McEwen is identifying Liz Truss as the dim person pretending well, to be Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think Liz... Is that harsh? Liz, I don't, yeah, I think that is harsh. I don't think Liz Truss is dim. I mean, she's... she's I mean, as she keeps pointing out, she's a very able mathematician. She's also, you know, obviously, um, like you, Oxbridge educated. And as she points out, went from a comprehensive school to, to Oxbridge. I mean, obviously helped by the fact, I guess, that her father's a, a maths professor. No, she's not, she's not stupid. I mean, I think the, you know, she's not very comfortable giving public speeches. She gets herself into strange positions because I think she tends to make quite sort of um, what, what's the word? She, she makes decisions quite sort of quickly and abandons them quite quickly. But mm. It's not quite the same as being sort of. Ten- I think she'd do fine on an IQ test. I don't think that's the problem. Do you think we should? Do you think all prime ministers should have psychological assessments? Probably more important than the IQ test. But actually, mm. if you come to think of it, I, I don't think being. I think judgment is really what you need. I mean, if you, if you think about Attlee, who was obviously a really, really great prime minister, he probably wasn't the cleverest person in the Labour Party, but he was by far. You know, his cabinet was full of people with enormous brains, but he was probably the best suited to be the prime minister, wasn't he? Andrew Carver, Rory, this is one for you. Why can't Rory Stewart just accept that austerity was bad? It wasn't just bad in prisons. Surely all ministers would have thought, not in my area, please. Firstly, I'm a little troubled because my brother-in-law is called Andrew Carver, so I'm still trying to... (laughs) Get, get, get my head around who exactly this Andrew Carver is. And he's also quite left wing. He was, um, he was. <laughs> is it, is it a brother-in-law as, just explain the connection. So he's no longer married to my sister, but he was, he was part of that, uh, revolutionary group in Cambridge that burnt down a hotel in Cambridge in the late sixties. 
Although oh, I think he, I, I, I think, think it's him. I, I've just I've just decided that it's him. <laughs> <laughs> it probably is probably is him. Um, so I think that reducing the deficit and reducing the debt was a smart thing to do. And had we not done it, we would have been in a much much bigger problem now that we've shot our debt up with COVID yet again. I think the one bit where George Osborne was right is that you do need to try to mend the roof while the sun's shining. And Ooh. if you just let your debt and deficit get I know, out it would have been great if they'd have done that. It would have been good if they'd done that. It really would if they'd actually mended the roof while the sun was shining. <laughs> that would have been really good. Mark J, Mark J, this, I think, again, I think this one's more for you than me. If you go from the Cameron Tories to today's Tories, do you think that those Tories that have been alienated during that process, and I think we'd have to include you in that, Rory, are closer to Keir Starmer's Labour than they are to Liz Truss's Tory party. Yes, I mean obviously I'm I'm probably that that probably is true about me. Yeah. And I I don't think anyone in Liz Truss's cabinet would question that. I think if you said to Quasi Quartang that I'm probably closer to Keir Starmer than I am to Liz Truss, he'd probably roar with laughter and say that you were right. Um here we are Jamie Dalrymple coming in with a question for you. Why is it that politicians all seem to adopt the same slightly unnatural position with their hands when making the point? It seems to be a closed fist with a thumb on top, which is used to point. I've never met anyone else who consciously makes this movement when talking. I think I've remembered Sajid Javid does it, doesn't he? Um, Tony Blair did it. And ah. I wonder why that's, that might be why a lot of people did it. I mean, it is quite a common thing. You put the thumb on the top like that and you do that. Liz Truss has very, very strange hand movements. John Major, I know, John Major used to use his hands a lot when speaking and still does. And he never separated the fingers. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So George Osborne is very, very odd. He would often... Let's just leave it there. George Osborne is very, very odd. Full stop paragraph. If you watch his hands, they often sort of move sort of centrally in front of his chest. And David Cameron, when he was at the dispatch box, he'd sort of move very flat hands, float them over the top of the dispatch box, almost as though he was moving steam over a magic potion. But basically, the answer is British people don't know how to talk with their hands. It's not a culture like Italy where we actually understand how to use our hands when we're speaking. I, I think, having spent a lot of time with Tony Blair, I think because he doesn't do that other than when he's speaking under pressure or in public. He does it a little bit, but not that much. I think it's a way of keeping his temperament under very, very tight control. Okay. I think he does it for that reason. In- Bill Clinton was much more, Bill Clinton had amazing hand movement. And he used to sort of use his hands were part of his speech. I, I do a lot. I, I do a lot of hand movement. I love my hands when I'm waving them around mm. when I'm speaking. I, I, I think there's some, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a DNA test and I'm hoping to find some Italian explanation for this. I've done my, I've done my DNA test and it's, it's virtually all uh, Scottish Irish yeah, with, a bit, with a bit of Scandi. That's my problem. I, I I did it for me and my father. My father was something like ninety nine percent Scottish, and even worse, it was ninety nine percent from a very small area between Perthshire and Angus. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Paston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, 
Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. We had a question, KP, from Sydney. Yeah. What were your parents like? I'm keen to foster an interest in my children in getting them interested in the world and showing compassion for others. Um, we've talked a bit about our parents. My dad was a vet um, from the Hebrides. My mother was a farmer's daughter uh, and one of the happiest, nicest people that ever lived. Um, not that political. Interested in politics, but not that political. So what about you? Uh, we, we've we've talked a bit. We talked a fair bit about. I met your mum. She's a wonderful. Mom. Well, yeah, I think she's also actually. I mean, I I think she is a remarkably happy person. She, um, my father was a much. I mean, I I would have loved to introduce you to my father because he was a a sort of big, quite macho, very opinionated Scot, um, with you know with a Scottish accent in a way that I don't have a Scottish accent. And he was it posh Scottish or. Posh Scottish, but but there was an edge of a Scottish accent there. He'd never been south of the border until he was eighteen when he went to went to Oxford. So never never left Scotland until he was eighteen, mm. Mm. and then joined a Scottish regiment in the army. Joined the Black Watch with his brother. What did he do to foster my interest in the world? Well, he was an amazing traveller, and he was wonderful about taking me with him. Probably my most memorable trip with him was he he took me to Myanmar to Burma when he was eighty seven years old. And he stumped around. I mean, he, he wasn't actually physically that fit by that age. He was moving quite slowly. But every morning he'd get up 5.30 in the morning and he'd go out and he'd find breakfast food off a stall in the market and a map. And he'd come stomping back into our hotel room. We'd share a hotel room, little twin beds, and dump on my bed some extraordinary kind of sugary fried objects that he'd found in the market. And then drag me out for a march around, which poking things with his stick. Um, so anyway, that's, that's my father. How, how old was he? How old was he when he wrote, you wrote the book when you were walking with him? So he, he was that, 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 that age, I, I wrote it in with him in his late eighties and then mm. in, into his early nineties. And he actually, um, died at 93. He would be a hundred if he was still alive today. And I was with him when he died. I, I tried to, um, resuscitate him unsuccessfully when he, when he died. But he went in the most wonderful way with so much uh, courage. It's absolutely wonderful. I mean, he he started having a heart attack and he said to me, Rory, this is not good. And he pointed at a box of pills that I brought over. But I just then and in the sort of half hour leading up to it, he just so, you know, I, I was so proud of him. And, and in an mm. odd way, I haven't mourned him much because... I loved him so much and felt that, um, yeah, that, that, that him, him, him leaving in, in the right way was good. Tell me about mm. your father. Uh, he, he was also born in 1922, um, born in Tyree in the Hebrides, uh, was left the island to go to school in his teens, uh, went to Glasgow University, became a vet. My mum actually, I think I may have told you this before, my mum at one point broke off their engagement because he refused to countenance going to work in England. Um, <laughs> if, if he, he was adamant he'd be able to get, but, the, but actually there were, there was a dearth, a, a glut of vets in Scotland and a dearth of vets in England. So eventually 
my mum called it off and then but they did eventually go to England and then he got a practice and and uh, he was he was um, he didn't live as as long as your your dad he was 82 when he died I regret the fact that I was with neither of my parents I think I've told you before my mum I was in I was in I was actually where where you live now in Jordan when my mum had her stroke and she was dead by the time I got home um, I did have a that sort of final conversation with my dad when I knew he was dying and I do think those conversations are incredibly important but I regret the fact that I I, I never had that with my mum yeah um here's a question to try to get us off solemn subjects I, because I'm beginning to worry there's all these names coming in that seem sort of weirdly familiar so somebody who calls himself Alan Duncan and maybe <laughs> Sir Alan Duncan <laughs> greetings from Addis Ababa says Brackets, possibly, Sir Alan Duncan. Do you think the exodus of international NGO personnel from Ethiopia as a result of the security situation will be good or bad for Ethiopia's development trajectory? Wow. Do you think that is Alan Duncan? The MP Alan Duncan? No. I, I, I'm just going back to one. You, you had one called Jamie Del Rimple. The guy who trained the, ran the training scheme on the Daily Mirror when I was there was called Jim Del Rimple. Maybe we're just getting all our yesterdays coming in here. Yeah, um, I doubt that is Sir Alan Duncan. Um, no. I, hope the, I hope the answer to that question is that it would be bad for the development of Ethiopia because if, if, if development could happen without these NGOs, then – I'm not. I'm not convinced by that. And and we've talked about Ethiopia recently. It is. A, yeah, it well, is we a, have. It and is and I, I want to put out an apology because I've been challenged by people and the Mail and the Mail on Sunday and people who are not my natural allies have been picking up on some of the comments I made about some of the things that I thought were wrong about international development. Just to put it on the record, I think that we should be increasing our development spend. That. It's true that we have got a lot of things wrong. Of course we have. We spent four billion pounds in Malawi and it's difficult to see over, over 50 years and it's difficult to see what that did. But the truth is that I think we've got some amazing professionals and we need them. We desperately need people. We need people in the foreign office and what used to be differed in policy, thinking about some of the big issues on how to end poverty. And if I'm right that cash is a big bit of that, only one or two percent of the international development spent on cash at the moment. I think it should be nearly half mm. spent on cash. But getting there is going to require some very smart economists and policy brains mm. pushing that forward. By the way, Rory, we had a few people say that they didn't think that we answered the questions. That sometimes that we got the questions, we debated them, but we didn't always answer them. I thought that was a bit harsh, but we should bear it in mind. Um, James Peterson, we're not getting many questions from women here. But I'm going to stick with this one. James Peterson. I don't know whether that's the James Peterson that I went to school with. Um, you, you, rarely, <laughs> you rarely discuss the Liberal Democrats, but they could be kingmakers. It's true, actually. We don't talk about them much, do we? No, we don't talk about them enough, do we? And, and I, that may be some horrible kind of conservative Labour snobbery that we never really take them seriously. We just talk about the big parties. We talk about, we as we did in the, in the interview with uh, soon-to-be uh, put out with Mark Drakeford, we did talk about, and he agreed, I think, that he felt that Labour and the Lib Dems should be working pretty closely together in terms of a general election strategy. But it's true. We don't, but I guess that's a consequence of them getting, you know, doing so badly at the last election. Mm. But we should, we should, we, we'll no, we should talk about them more and we should maybe get one of them on, maybe a not serving politician, get them to reflect on that. I like Paddy Ashton. The, I went to see well, Paddy can't Ashton get him on I, because Paddy Ashton is RIP. Uh, she's not with us anymore. But mm. I went to see Paddy Ashton when I was thinking of becoming an MP for the first time for advice. 
And his big bit of advice to me was, whatever you do, don't become a Lib Dem. <laughs> I, I'll, give, I'll give you – I've got lots of stories of Paddy Ashdown. I mean, we, we, uh, but when I was a journalist on the Sunday Mirror, I went to interview him down at his house in his constituency in Somerset. And I was quite a young journalist. And I realized after the interview was concluded that I didn't turn my tape on. <laughs> And I hadn't taken any notes. And Jane, his wife, just said, well, I think you should probably do it again, Paddy. Paddy won't mind. Oh. Yeah, that was nice. So, Alistair, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap because you may be able to hear at the edge of this podcast that there is a steel band playing outside. I'm in Kampala, Uganda, and I've got 40 members of our charity from nine different African countries outside waiting to meet me who aren't going to be very amused. I'm on the podcast all the time. So, last question from Ruth Wells for you. Do you two ever watch TV? I'm a priest in the Church of England who admitted loving the new season of Married at First Sight UK in my sermon to the congregation this morning. Smiley face with tears. What are your go-to rubbish TV programs? Over to you, Alistair. Oh, I, I try not to watch rubbish TV, but I do like, we, we watched, uh, we're watching Capture at the moment, uh-huh. which is a thing about um, deep fake technology which is quite scary we recently watched blackbird which was extraordinary the guy who played elton john taron edgerton who's absolutely brilliant in it playing an american former american footballer who becomes a drug dealer gets into prison and gets offered the chance to go into what would be a kind of um broadmoor to try to get this kind of psychopath guy to yeah. admit to previous offences, it is it is so tense um, and absolutely brilliant. So, look, I don't want I don't want much telly, but I I do watch a bit. So, my recommendation for the moment, although I must confess, I just caught it on the plane flying to Kampala, so I didn't finish the movie. <laughs> Not a great recommendation, <laughs> but I thought mesmerising was a film called The Contractor ah. with Chris Chris Pine in it because it was the most wonderful uh, at the beginning, at least um, examination of what takes people out of the military to become private security contractors oh, wow. and the medical challenges they face and the murky world of security contracting. In his case, he gets dragged into kind of American black ops mm. at the moment, at least at which our plane landed. Oh, anyway, couldn't you have just sort of said, look, um, I haven't finished the film yet. <laughs> I'm a very important person. Very I important. don't know whether you're Rory, should you really be admitting that you're watching Films on planes, it's technically working, traveling to the place. Well, it is true. It, I mean, I just want to point out it was economy class flight, central seat, <laughs> lots of screaming babies all the way around me. And I had been working until then. Now, thank you all very, very much. And, and have a lovely, lovely uh, day. All the best. Speak soon. <laughs>